Hey, hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Dr. Waleed Ferris, Middle East expert, author, has served as foreign policy advisor to Donald Trump and Mitt Romney, and Secretary General of the Transatlantic Parliamentary Group, TAG, join us to discuss Iran bombs Abu Dhabi, why this matters, and a broader view of the region. Dr. Ferris will speak for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Dr. Walid Ferris. Thank you very much, Stacey. I'd like to thank you, your team, the Middle East Forum, uh, for organizing uh, this event. Also, my assistant, uh, Dorothy, who helped me uh, set up from my side. Uh, I'd like also to greet everybody who's here on uh, uh, participating in this briefing. And let me start immediately by addressing the actual topic. Um, over the past few weeks, a uh, unprojected development happened, which is the targeting of Abu Dhabi, the capital of the UAE, by Iran-backed militias, the Houthis in Yemen, with ballistic missiles and with drones. That, in my view, has changed the strategic landscape or the strategic engagement game in the region. Uh, within the general confrontation between the Arab coalition and Iran and its allies. More concerning was the fact that a few days ago, even before I prepared for this briefing, a pro-Iran militia organization out of South Iraq claimed that it has been part of also this shelling campaign against the UAE. We will have to confirm this, but this is uh, telling us that this campaign to destabilize the United Arab Emirates, specifically target Abu Dhabi, is part of an Iranian coordinated campaign to take the UAE out of the equation. And that equation has been for years, not just over the past months and, and weeks, uh, a escalating campaign, escalating confrontation between the Iran axis with all their militias, allies in the region, and the coalition now called the Arab coalition had different names led by Saudi Arabia. And the UAE is one of the three leading countries, forces in that coalition along with Saudi and Egypt. So I'll use one minute just to trace the genesis and the uh, evolution of this confrontation between that block of Arab moderates or Arab anti-Iranian expansion uh, all the way to the most recent events. And then we will focus on what could happen as of uh, this benchmark. The confrontation between Iran's regime and the Saudis has started on day one of the revolution in 1979. I would say they, day two. Once they seized power in Iran, the Khomeinists, these are the followers of uh, Imam Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, clearly said and in public that one of their goals uh, which was actually materializing in the slogans, the chanting of death to America, death to Israel. And the third slogan was death to the Saudi family or the Saudi regime, as they call it. Uh, that has started immediately. But during the Cold War, it was difficult for Iran to direct its efforts uh, on the one hand against the United States, and it was in confrontation, the Soviet Union at the time, and of course, uh, the Arabs led by Saudi Arabia. It was only in the early 90s that the escalation became uh, significant and it 
spread throughout the uh, the region. Uh, the narrative by the Iranian regime was very clear for ideological, theological, and other reasons that they wanted to bring the regime down. Now, bringing it closer to us in terms of time, Iran's expansion in the region that took some time, specifically an alliance with Assad in the 1980s, then a gradual takeover of Lebanon via Hezbollah in the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, led to the formation of a regional bloc that Iran controlled. Some would call it the Iran arc in, in the Middle East. But it was really after the withdrawal by the United States in 2011, end of 2011, from Iraq, when that happened under the Obama administration, that the Iran regime was able to close the gap by sending its militias inside Iraq and forming that plateau, geographical plateau from Iran to Iraq to Syria to Lebanon. The second most important development in the confrontation between Iran and the Saudis and their allies was somewhere around, sometime around 2010 into 2011, when a guerrilla or an insurgency took place in Yemen, mostly in North Yemen, uh, at the hand with the, uh, with the with the efforts by Iran to support a militia called the uh, Houthis al Houthiyin, uh, that started actually a geographical confrontation between Iran proxies in based in Yemen and the Saudis. It escalated till about 2014, when the Saudi government created a coalition to help them uh, make sure that this, the, the the Houthis are contained in Yemen. That was the first effort by the Saudis who enlisted many Arab uh, and Muslim countries, including the UAE. And the campaign took place against, uh, against the Houthis since then. Under the Obama administration, uh, it was very difficult for the Saudi to enlist American and uh, Western support to help them uh, contain that militia. But uh, under the Trump administration, specifically since the May 2017 Riyadh summit attended by then the former president and by 50 to 52 Arab and Muslim leaders, where it was a US president who encouraged uh, this Arab coalition, Arab Muslim coalition, if you want, to uh, do all what is needed to push back against Iranian uh, expansion. And at the same time, to push back against the jihadists of all types and kinds and the Muslim Brotherhood, so on and so forth. The Arab coalition uh, took that speech as a green light to move further and escalated in Yemen against that organization, which was listed then or after then by the Trump administration as a terrorist organization. So opening the door for that local regional coalition to move forward against them. Obviously, there were incidents and clashes between the US and the Arab uh, coalition with Iranian militias uh, across Iraq. We remember those events uh, ending in the, um, in the elimination of Qasem Soleimani at the, uh, at the end of the uh, 2020 or January 2021. And also uh, the confrontation with the militias close to the Iranians in, in Syria throughout that time. Now, when the Trump administration ended and the Biden administration came along, 
the Iran deal became an important piece for US foreign policy to be achieved. From that moment, the Iranian regime escalated its own campaigns against the Saudis to make sure that by the time they would negotiate through Vienna, the Iran deal or the JCPOA, the way they wanted, I, they needed to have a weaker Arab coalition. So the intensity of the Houthi militia responding to the Saudis was sometime at the end of last year, but mostly in this year, by firing ballistic missiles deep into Saudi territory. And those ballistic missiles, which were used even two to three years ago, but became a constant campaign by the pro-Iran militia in Yemen to target airports, all facilities inside the kingdom. On the other hand, the UAE have been involved along with the Saudis who led most of the efforts in Yemen against the pro-Iran militia. The UAE have been very active in helping um, the South Yemeni forces known as STC, Southern Transitional Council and other forces to train their brigades. Uh, there is a name now being uh, circulated in the West, uh, Al-Amalika, or if you want, the, the giant brigades. Those are Southern Yemeni brigades trained by the UAE, operating under the Arab coalition, Saudi and Yemeni uh, legal uh, government. And those forces, those units were able to push back against the Houthis, including very recently, over the past two months, those units have been pushing the Houthis outside Southern Yemen and moving into Northern Yemen. So, First conclusion, as we get closer uh, to, my, to the end of my presentation, is that one, that one reason for Iran and the Houthis to fire ballistic missiles, not just against the Saudis, but this time against the UAE, it's because of the UAE or Emirati training and support to these brigades to help, quote unquote, liberate Yemen from the Iran militia. That's reason number one. It was actually stated both by the Houthis and directly by the Iranians that the UAE should cease its operations in Yemen, in Southern Yemen, uh, to alleviate the pressure against the, uh, the Houthis, which, which reminded me historically of during World War, World War II when, when the Nazi German forces were uh, trying to contain the advance in Normandy of the Allies were moving forward. What did they do? They fired these, the famous V1 and V2 onto Great Britain, deep inside Great Britain, London, so on and so forth. So it is a signal that the Iranian militias were losing the ground in Yemen. And that's an important, I would say, cataclysmic uh, event if it happens fully, because Iran would lose all of its cards in, in Arabia by losing the, the Houthis, which is which didn't happen yet. But there was another reason I focused on, which is that since the summer of 2020, after the Abraham Accords were signed here in Washington and started to expand, in, including, of course, the UAE, Bahrain, then into Morocco and Sudan, other candidates are waiting to move in under that umbrella. They were a series of bilateral agreements held or signed between Israel and the UAE, Israel and Bahrain most recently. Some of these agreements have to do with security. 
And the Iranians understand the strategic uh, problem that they will have if two, maybe more, members of the Abraham Accords will have a strategic relationship, including a military re relationship with the Israelis. I mean, you look at the map and you understand that their that their upper flank in the Middle East will be, will be under pressure. They would not. They won't be able uh, if those agreements go as far as mutual agreement, which they are not yet. But the Iranians wants to preempt. So a second reason for this campaign uh, of ballistic missiles against Abu Dhabi, and we don't know how far they're going to go if they can target another city or another country, also part of this coalition. Uh, we don't know. I mean, the bottom line is if, if the Iranians are going to go full-fledged into a systematic paralysis, economic paralysis of Abu Dhabi, other cities, or the UAE. If that happens, then it's very possible that not just the Saudis who are involved uh, in the campaign or in the war in Yemen, but other regional players, and I'm going to name Israel as a possibility, that could enter the fray of a campaign to defend their allies in the region, because that is a mutual uh, defensive uh, setup. So the Iranian regime, in my view, has taken that specific action, which I have projected for many, many years. I have an article from, from, from eight years uh, asking Washington and people dealing with the issue to focus on the long-range missiles of the Iran regime. An, an article uh, where I, it, I titled it, it's not the fissile, it's the missile, meaning yes, the Iranians are trying to work on a nuclear weapon, but what they are really developing and very quickly is the weapon that can allow them to uh, fire against all their enemies as far as Yemen or maybe beyond in the future. So at this point in time, we don't know where the Iranians will go. What we know about Iran and most experts, I think, agree is that they are very pragmatic. If they see that there is a response, that there is a strategic response to what they're doing, in this case, targeting the UAE, which is new, then they may halt, then they may freeze, then they may recalculate. So the response, the first wave of response uh, that we are monitoring now is the UAE response. Very quickly, after the first volley of ballistic missiles fired against Abu Dhabi, Emirati fighter bombers accompanied Saudi fighter bombers and then responded in Yemen and took out the ramps, the base where these missiles have, uh, have, have been launched. So that's one type. Second, it could go beyond that. It could escalate uh, along with the Arab coalition to respond back into uh, Iran. And thirdly, the biggest question now, and I conclude here, is what is Washington going to do? And when I say Washington and foreign policy, it's the Biden administration. And we all know, at least on this call, that the priority of this administration now is to negotiate and sign the Iran deal. Can this administration, on the one hand, help strategically its Arab and Middle Eastern allies in this case, and then enter the, the game of uh, deterrence against Iran? Or it will freeze that file and continue the negotiations through Vienna, sign the agreement, and then we will know what will be the next phase. And I'll leave you with that thought. Uh, and these are my 15 minutes. I'll be more than happy, Stacey, now to, uh, uh, to entertain questions. 
Very wonderful. So the first question we have in is from Avner. Uh, Iran influence has been booming. Can it be a warning to the UAE and others to not get too close to Israel? You did touch on that. Yeah, I mean, I thank you for the question. Very good question. The Iran expansion is unstoppable, especially over this past year. Uh, with, uh, with, with Hezbollah, they have completely controlled Lebanon. They're partially controlling Syria because they have other um, comrades, uh, Russia, that control the Northeast, but the Assad regime is still very close to them. What they need to do, what the Iranians wants to continue doing, and that would be another setback if they can't do it, which is the land bridge between Iran through Iraq. And in Iraq, they need those Iranian militias to continue to be in control into Syria, where they have the alliance with Assad, and into Hezbollah, Lebanon, and they are on the Mediterranean. And they have a front, quote unquote, with Israel. That's what Iran wants to achieve in the northern geographical location. And in the south, obviously, they, their battle now is to maintain the presence of the Houthis until, until they sign actually the Iran deal. Then we'll see what is the, the next move they have. Thank you. From Lisa, with Putin's recent meeting with Raisi, uh, what do you see might be Russia's role or influence on these developments? Russia has already had its move. President Putin in 2014-15, mostly 15, has actually uh, made it his strategic or the Kremlin's strategic intention very clear, which is they have a base in northwestern Syria. They're going to maintain that base. They have their own little politics uh, locally with, with Israel, where to go, where not to go. This could change as well. Uh, Russia doesn't guarantee fully that if Iran is hit by the Arab coalition in Israel, that it will go full-fledged with Iran. We don't know that. Uh, same could be asked about China. Uh, th these are the areas, uh, the black holes. We really don't know. It depends on what Russia is going to lose or gain. It depends on what is Russia, the Kremlin, is going to do with regard to Ukraine and what we are going to do in Europe. So this is the larger uh, game. But Russia is supplying Iran with, with the weapons, uh, is using the money, will be using the money of an Iran deal if we sign it, which in my view, I, I, I uh, tweeted about it yesterday. If we fund Iran, we will be funding Iran buying more weapons from Russia, which is a, a drama in my view. Thank you so much. Uh, from Ernest Steinberg, can you please clarify what Northern Yemen means? And since the Houthis seem hemmed in between Saudi Arabia and the Southern Yemen opposition, why is it that they have been able to maintain territorial control? Excellent question. I don't have the whole answer, but I'll try with my best. So unified Yemen only existed since 1994. Before that, as we all remember, there was Northern Yemen, more conservative. It had a lot of Islamist uh, factions as well, including the Muslim Brotherhood through the party of Al-Islah, which is the Ikhwan of, of Yemen and many Salafis. Southern Yemen has been very secular. And at one point, it was even pro-Soviet during the Cold War. Then it reverted back from pro being pro-Soviet to being a republic, a secular, uh, I would say progressive republic. Uh, and it was in, technically invaded by Northern Yemen in 1994, and they declared a, a unity. The country worked for a while until two forces penetrated further. The Brotherhood penetrated the north further. And 
in the north of the north, meaning the north has two components. One is Arab Sunni and a lot of fundamentalists there. But the north of it is a kind of Shia, faction of a Shia, and it has been penetrated by the Iran Revolutionary Guard, the Pasdaran, uh, years ago. And they, they organized themselves up until 2009 and 10, where the Houthis, the militia that is comparable to Hezbollah, their technical name actually is Ansarullah, so it's very close to, to Hezbollah. They are in direct strategic relationship with uh, Iran. Now, the, the gist of the question is, how come Saudi Arabia and the Arab coalition and all what they have were not able to militarily defeat the Houthis? Many reasons. We could have another discussion about that, but reason number one, it's not easy for the Arab countries to have an expeditionary force somewhere else. You, you, need, you need to have that experience before. The UAE were able to do it in the South, so they have units in the South. Uh, the Saudis used massively their, um, their air force. Only countries like Egypt, with the size uh, they have, they had expeditionary forces in the past in, in, uh, in Yemen and in Syria. But there's another reason. There is a number of weapons and ammunition that the Arab coalition had requested from the uh, Obama administration, and now they're trying to get it from the Biden administration, that they were not allowed to get it because of the pressure, in my view, of the strong Iran deal lobby in Washington. So that is a technical reason, but the strategic reason is that it needs time. It's not an, an easy matter. Understood. Uh, so you mentioned the UAE response. Do you believe that that is enough, or will it take a coordinated Arab coalition act, attack to, to send a message? Brilliant. The, the, the answer actually is the second segment of, of your question. It will take a strategic coordination effort within the Arab coalition, which is still working to find its structure and respond, plus the fact that both Saudi but mostly the UAE and Bahrain. To be very clear, we look at the map and for those among us who visited, their entire economic structure is exposed. It's on the coast, right? Front of Iran. So Saudi at least has some of it in the Eastern part of Saudi Arabia, in the desert, dispersed around the kingdom in Riyadh. That's a little bit far. But when we talk about Abu Dhabi, uh, Dubai or Bahrain or even Kuwait, if it goes that far, uh, they have to be very smart. They have to be very, uh, you know, very prepared. If they want to engage full-fledged with the Iranians, their entire economic line uh, is, is completely exposed. So they need a real uh, work with a country, a superpower or a local power that has the air power to defend and protect. And that's the first lesson uh, that I can leave you with, with regard um, the missiles targeting Abu Dhabi, the, the, the message from Iran is, and they said it, we know where your towers are. That means we know where your cultural centers, economic centers are. Now, the response could be devastating to Iran. So it's up to the Iranian leadership to, to play the game. Because yes, they could damage the UAE and Saudi Arabia, but the other side of it, they could lose their regime as well. Because a full-fledged response by the Arab coalition and Israel, and if and when the administration will change its posture, could be devastating to Iran. So on the other side of the equation, uh, one of our viewers asked, can any nation now under Iranian control free itself, uh, for example, Lebanon? That's another amazing question. I've been <laughs> debating it over the past two weeks. Several of the countries that are occupied technically, uh, 
by the Iran regime. I call them in Arabic, the, the, the colonies of the Iran regime, that's Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Yemen, at least. There are movements out there who are uh, rising to try to liberate themselves from the Iran regime. It's very difficult. Uh, the Kurds were lucky in Iraq because they had their autonomy before the militias, the Iranian militias came in and before the first withdrawal and now before the second withdrawal of the US. Uh, there are many elements in Iraq, uh, in the Anbar and inside even the Sunni areas, but even liberal Shiites who wants to get rid of the Iranian uh, occupation, even people inside the army. It's not easy, but if there is a strategic defeat of Iran anywhere in the Middle East, there will be a collective effort to, to rise. In Syria, the country is already divided. I don't think, I mean, Assad now is under the umbrella of the Russians. What could be at play would be all that desert and the Arabian tribes who, who, who are between Damascus and the border of Iraq. That's something that is possible, but it's, it also uh, necessitates a position by the United States. In Lebanon, in Lebanon, Hezbollah has had a complete control since uh, since 1991, that's for sure. But there are areas in Lebanon which recently, I'm talking about last year and this year, have shown Hezbollah that they could resist. And Yemen, we've just discussed the matter. So my answer to the, to the question is yes, there are spots that can and will resist Iran in the region on their own. Thank you. And you mentioned the, the coastlines. Uh, David Levine asks, are the Iranian, Iranians in coalition with the Somali pirates? And if the Houthis take over Yemen, won't this mean control of the entrance of the Red Sea? Absolutely. Absolutely. What a question. Uh, the reason, another reason why Iran supplied the Houthis with ballistic missiles is to look west, not just east. East meaning Saudi Arabia, and, you know, and, and kind of encircling Saudi Arabia with missiles. But uh, as the question, uh, said, uh, yes, the Iranians have activities on the other side of the Red Sea, not just in Somalia and other spots. And they're trying also in some coordination with the Brotherhood, who also have a presence on the other side of the Horn of Africa, kind of uh, take Bab al-Mandib into and uh, put it under pressure. And now that will be a direct threat to international economy and to the U.S. national security. So. They are doing it very slowly, gradually, from time to time, they bought some missiles, but that's not their priority right now. They wanna consolidate themselves in Yemen. They wanna work with some guerrillas on the other side of, uh, of, of the Red Sea in Africa. And when time will come, what they call the crunching, they, they, they will try to do it. Thank you. Uh, Alvin Corres asks, what part will Qatar play in the politics of the Middle East? Well, they have two Qatar, the Qatar that has been the ally and the sponsor of the Muslim Brotherhood and of the militias. They, uh, they have organized across the Middle East, uh, from Libya to Tunisia, uh, as far as Algeria, Egypt has tasted that, uh, militias in, in Syria. I mean, it's clear, special relations also between Qatar and Turkey politically. Uh, so they have that one, and Al Jazeera, obviously, the, the uh, uh, the TV network that is that supports these ideas. On the other hand, you have a Qatar has developed kind of a very strong relationship with major actors here in the United States, which is uh, surprising to our allies in the Arab coalition and also to Israel. And not just uh, on one side of the uh, the aisle, on both sides of the aisle, the Qatar um, Qatar lobbies have been very very efficient. So that balances a little bit uh, the U.S. response or pressure on Qatar. 
most recently, Qatar felt that the Arab coalition means business. Actually, they have been fighting the jihadists all over the place. So they kind of broke the ice with Saudi Arabia and most recently with the UAE. So Qatar as a government is trying to unlink itself from that massive involvement with, with the Brotherhood and others uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, Qatar believed that it can play a political role, diplomatic role between the Arab coalition and Iran. They do have good relations uh, with the Iranians. But my feeling, my perception is, at least under this administration, is that Qatar will stay as much as it can neutral, neutral in terms of uh, visibility, but they continue to support the Islamists in many parts of, uh, of the region. So they, they will play it by ear, if I can say. Thank you. And in our last minute or two here, can you just give us what your recommendations would be to the Biden administration on how to proceed? If I can access the Biden administration, my recommendations are going to be you know, very pressed because time is not our ally in this game uh, and not the ally of the administration as well because the administration had, now has full power in, in foreign policy. We don't know after November elections, we don't know what's gonna happen next year. We may have a divided government. So if they wanna do something, it's now or in alliance with whomever is gonna win the next election. Having said that on domestic, uh, number one, now I want to be very clear, and I haven't been that clear. They need to stop the negotiations with Iran in Vienna and secretly, because we know what they're doing elsewhere with the Iranian regime, until Iran will respond to two, three priorities. Number one, that Iran will, will cease supporting the Houthis uh, with, with ballistic missiles, which is part of actually the, the negotiation. That should be number one. Number two, for us as Americans, we need them to release the hostages. It's unbelievable that we are negotiating and all these hostages are rotting in, in jails in, uh, in Iran. And thirdly, Iran needs to start negotiating on the withdrawal or the partial with uh, uh, disarming of its militias across the region. I mean, we're negotiating with them and they control and support Hezbollah that is a direct enemy of the United States and same could be said about all these places. If Iran, if the administration suspend the negotiations, continue with the sanctions and stand by the UAE, which we are, but partially, but that's different from when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, we had a different response. We're not saying we're gonna go that far, but that should be proportional to what the Iranians are doing. Then, then the administration could bring the negotiation bring the equation to zero level from where they could continue the negotiations. Because I conclude, a regime like Iran won't understand except when we establish a balance of power, a balance of power with an edge to the United States. Short of this, investing everything in these negotiations and letting go of our priorities, which should be the Arab coalition and Israel and the minorities in the region and the civil societies, uh, I don't see good news coming from the region, and I see actually news indicating to further conflicts down the line. All right. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you, Dr. Ferris, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, and my best to everybody who was part of it. Thank you. Uh, for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.